Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Some of the most famous, especially in popular culture, are often identified, known, and celebrated by a single name. Think of Elvis, Oprah, or Madonna, Adele, or Rihanna, Cher, Seinfeld. Our guest is Geraldo, Geraldo Rivera. Born slightly over 80 years ago on the 4th of July, he is an attorney, author, political commentator, journalist, and war correspondent who recently left the Fox News Channel, where he worked from 2001 to 2023. A native New Yorker, he made his mark long before Fox as a journalist, initially with Peabody award-winning coverage of the execrable treatment of the mentally ill at Willowbrook, a state-run school for the mentally disabled in Staten Island, New York. He went on to become a major, some would say a central figure in both radio and television, which included becoming strongly identified with what came to be known as tabloid or trash TV. In 1986, he hosted the highest-rated syndicated special in the history of television, focusing on a live opening of an underground vault once owned by the infamous Chicago criminal Al Capone. 30 million viewers watched globally as the Waldorf underground room proved but for debris to be empty. Politically, Geraldo identifies himself as a pro-choice, pro-gay marriage, pro-immigration reform Republican who supports, as he says, some gun control. And please feel free to join us with any questions you may have or comments while we're live on this September 22nd, your humble host's birthday. And welcome, Geraldo Rivera. Hi, Michael. How you doing? Good. Good to have you here. And you're live thank with you. us from Cleveland, Ohio, my hometown. And uh, we'll thank Paul Katz for being the uh, middleman on this. Uh, I want to talk with you about, well, so much. Politics, much more. You've had an extraordinary career. Congratulations on that. First thing on my mind, though, is breaking news. The real succession, Lachlan Murdoch, named chair to replace Rupert Murdoch. What does that mean to you as a guy who's retiring from Fox? Well, I identify with my uh, ex-boss's uh, situation. He's kind of, he wants to stay in. Uh, I, he's got the instinct, the fighter's instinct. And on the other hand, he knows that he's aged out. He's got a successor. Uh, he's, uh, he's pinpointed which of his, uh, of his flock that he wants to lead, uh, lead the family business. I, I admire everything he's done, obviously. It's a, a staggering and profound achievement. He built an empire, uh, you know, uh, such that it's uh, it's fictionalized and uh, uh, demonized and uh, adored uh, around the globe. Uh, he found a niche in the English-speaking audience uh, where they felt underserved or unserved by mainstream media. Uh, you know, an audience uh, that represents, uh, if you look at the 70 million votes that uh, President Trump got last time around uh, in his losing effort, uh, it represents about half the country. So, uh, you know, I wish him well. I wish him the best. He was a good boss, a good uh, boss as far as I was concerned. And you can't deny his his incredible achievement. Did Trump really lose the last election? There are many in uh, <laughs> your world who say, no, he didn't, and believe him, even though it's gone through how many court processes? I lost count. Well, uh, to me, it's uh, lamentable. Uh, in this very room, I took uh, regular calls from President Trump over the four years he was in the White House. I was, I was privileged and, uh, and, and proud to have that kind of access. Everything was always on the record. Uh, I remember very distinctly the last time we spoke, which was Friday the 13th of November 2020, and he did not at all, 10 days after the election, sound to me like someone who was 
digging in and believe the election was phony and so forth. Sounded to me, he said, in fact, that uh, he was a realist and that, uh, you know, he seemed to me to indicate that he would go with uh, whatever, whatever the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the process um, decided in terms of who was elected. Uh, I was shocked and, and dismayed in the coming, in the days following that, where he dug in his heels and became increasingly delusional about the election. And uh, by the end of the month, it was clear that uh, he had gone off the cliff and uh, I wasn't going to go with him. Well, in fact, you didn't vote for him the second time. You attributed that to spousal influence. I like that phrase. <laughs> but you also went on record as saying that he incited January 6th. So is he still someone you would call a friend or has he become an enemy now? Well, that's an interesting characterization, Michael. I, I don't know. I mean, I have a soft spot for him. Uh, we were uh, friends for over 40 years. I've known him since the middle 70s. And it's it was a, a thrill for me to watch a you know a hangout buddy become president of the of the United States, uh, but we, where he went, and this you know is he still my friend? Uh, I don't know. I haven't spoken to him. I don't anticipate I will. Uh, I may have a soft spot for him, but uh, it's outrageous what he did. He did incite January sixth. He uh, he unleashed that violence. He. He denied the constitutional process. He stabbed the Constitution in the back. Uh, you know, there's some places you cannot go, and I fear uh, that uh, his, his recklessness, I, you know, it d dismays me even more. And, uh, you know, I, I probably this is fruitful ground uh, to cover, I think, Michael. Uh, uh, what's, what bothers me even more than Trump's malignant narcissism is the fact that so many Republicans— uh, and and a considerable number of independents as well are willingly uh, accepting a lie as truth. They know, I think that everybody knows or should know that that election was not fake, that that was the people of the United States speaking. Maybe it was a bit messier than most uh, times because of the pandemic, but the evidence, uh, I mean, investigation after investigation after investigation have, has proven uh, that uh, the election was legitimate. And for people to pretend to believe that it was fake is to me uh, such a, a gut punch. And it's so uh, uh, I, I'm filled with dismay for my country and for them and shame on them. It's like a a wife who knows her husband's cheating on her and pretends that he's, uh, uh, you know, he's a good and faithful man. I mean, it's just disgusting to me. Uh, and I, I it, it is disqualifying. Uh, so uh, is he still my friend? As I said, I have a nostalgic uh, affection for him. But what he did is so insufferable that uh, I could never, ever consider uh, supporting him again under any circumstances, and shame on those who uh, who know the truth and who deny it, Michael. Can you explain the enigma, though, of people not only continuing to support him, but also supporting him to a greater degree, even as all this prosecutorial evidence comes forward uh, on so many different fronts? In fact, it's getting him more money, more support in some quarters. 
Well, uh, let me let me say this about uh, uh, about Trump's support and and, and so forth. I, I think that first of all, I lament all of these criminal proceedings. I understand that there are some, particularly uh, uh, the uh, the January sixth focused uh, investigations, Jack Smith and so forth. Uh, but the the one in New York, uh, the Stormy Daniels, the documents case, uh, I, I just think that the only thing that matters is that Donald Trump tried to change the result of the election. It's the only thing that matters. He fermented January 6th. He unleashed that violence. He attack the Constitution. That's what matters. All this other stuff is just noise to me. In terms of January 6th, that's what the second impeachment was about. The Congress of the United States impeached him for a second time because of what he did in discrediting the election and fighting it and causing the violence of January 6th. That's his principal crime. He was impeached for that. The Senate, in its wisdom, acquitted him. It's over. I, I think it should have ended there. I wish that it had ended there. I wish that he had gone off into the sunset and not kept this wound open that so affected the, the, the body America. But this other stuff, I... I it is such a terrible distraction, and it is, if you look, Michael, at how he gains, as you suggest, popularity and support, the more he is assailed in the mind of half this country. I just don't understand what's in it for anybody other than ambitious DAs and other politicians that want to make a point. I'm not, I, 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 I modify that. Let me modify that. I, I assume that there are plenty of people going after Trump right now motivated by the highest intent. I also suspe suspect that there are people going after Donald Trump because they're afraid they can't beat him at the ballot box. I, I, I think shame on all of us. I, I want him to go away. I want him to announce that he's going to retire. I want Joe Biden then to pardon him for everything in his federal jurisdiction that he can pardon him for, and I want the Trump era to end. But I also uh, want peace on earth and goodwill toward men. So there, there you go. And you're still a Republican. <laughs> I am the classic rhino. I am a, I, I'm a proud rhino. Here's why. Let me tell you why. I grew up, born in New York City, spent my whole early life right up through Brooklyn Law School in in around New York City. When I was coming up, John Lindsay was the mayor, liberal Republican. Nelson Rockefeller was the governor, a liberal Republican. Jack Javits was the senior senator, a liberal Republican. Louis Lefkowitz, the attorney general of New York State, was a liberal Republican. In my day, my formative years, and I, when I left Brooklyn for West Babylon, the town of Babylon was run by liberal Republicans. It used to be 
that you could be a liberal, a moderate, or a conservative on either party. The parties didn't define your ideology. So in that tradition, my father came from Puerto Rico, dirt poor, spoke English, unlike the other members of his 16 siblings. My father's one of 17. He was a Republican. So in, the, in my context, Republican was not what a Republican has become. Now it's become you have to be uh, pro-life. You have to be anti-gun uh, control. You've got to be uh, 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 a climate me, Geraldo, change can't you, denier. Can't you say it's also Trump's party now, really, isn't it? To a great it degree? is Trump's party. Yeah. It is it is Trump's party, but I am stubborn. And I, I think that I cause more trouble staying a Republican than I would if I was an independent or a Democrat. Let me also ask you, though, on that, uh, follow this uh, logic to our trajectory of what you're saying here. I remember when you joined Fox and you were praising Rupert Murdoch a few minutes ago and so forth as your boss and he was good to you and all that. But I remember when you went to Fox, there were people who were a little confounded because they thought of you as humane, social activist type of guy. And they were somebody said to me, Soraldo going to the dark side? I remember that. It stayed, <laughs> stayed in my mind. But, you know, I, of course, you have to go back to why and when I went to Fox. And people, my, my detractors conveniently forget it. And most people, just because it was so long ago and so many things competing for the public's attention uh, that people forget. Uh, but I went to Fox very specifically following 9-11. I had the highest rated program at the time uh, on CNBC, Rivera Live. I was on at nine o'clock Eastern, it was uh, obviously live. We did the OJ. We led the nation in that coverage. And Gary Condit, another California uh, story. Uh, Clinton's impeachment. I was one of the few that supported uh, uh, President Clinton through that, uh, that debacle. Uh, I wanted the attacks happened. So I had, at the time, three children living in New York. Aside from my own, uh, myself and, and Erica, who I later married, uh, living in New York, we happened to be in California at the time of the 9-11 attacks. I, I tried desperately to get back. I, it took me days to get back. I vowed then that I had to leave California, be in New York, uh, my city, which had been assailed. Six fathers and my kids' uh, grade school died in the Twin Towers. Uh, I said to my bosses at NBC, you must send me to war. I'm, uh, you know, I've experienced, I've been in uh, 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 the tribal territories of Pakistan, uh, between Pakistan and Afghanistan. I've been through the Khyber Pass. I know the turf. Let's get these bastards. NBC said, no, you can't go. You have this big show. You're not going anywhere. We got plenty of people to cover the war. So I quit my job. I went to my friend Roger Ailes, who coincidentally had hired me for the CNBC job. Another person uh, who's been demonized by not only just the left, but across the well, board. A lot of people. You can, you can get to that if you want to. But Roger Ailes said, yes, I'll hire you, but you're making way too much money. I can give you half what you're getting paid, and I'll send you to war. That's why I went to war. I went to war to get the bastards who had afflicted my city and my nation. That's why I went to Fox. I didn't go to Fox for any 
reason. I didn't go to the dark side. I didn't do any of that kind of reporting. All of 2000, that was 2001, 2002, all that year. I was, uh, uh, I called it my tour of terror. I was everywhere. You can imagine from uh, uh, Somalia to Sudan uh, to all throughout South Asia. I was looking for Osama bin Laden. I wanted to get the bastard. I went back and back and forth to Afghanistan. I, I, I walked the, the walk from Tora Bora into Pakistan. I, th then 2003 was the Iraq invasion. So I was a war correspondent for the first 10 years of my time at Fox, aside from covering natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina and Rita and all of the other, I, there was there's no politics in my uh, my professional life other than very tangentially. So, uh, you know, I did what I, I said I was going to do. My 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 failing, my my uh, where I where I didn't follow through is once I broke the news to the country that Osama bin Laden had been killed by our special forces. I happened serendipitously at the time, Michael, to be on the air is in Washington, D.C. And I, our, our sources got to us first, way before anybody else, way before CNN, way before anybody. I, I was able to break the news to the, to the country. Well, wait a minute, Geraldo, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but, you know, uh, and I don't want Trump to take up all the oxygen of our dialogue together. But, you know, just the other day, he retweeted something that said that Ben Laden really wasn't killed. And he was questioned about that. He didn't really give any straight answers, but I'm not sure why he retweeted it or felt the necessity to retweet it. So maybe from his perspective, somebody who sits down for dinner with Ye and Nick Fuentes, uh, that's uh, a given fact in his mind. I mean, the idea that somehow Osama Ben Laden wasn't killed speaks to the kind of conspiracy theories that have been part of, really, the GOP as we see it now. Well, that Osama bin Laden was killed. I, I spoke in and interviewed the guy that killed him, uh, Rob, I forget his last name, uh, the Special Forces guys. They had my broadcast on the air at the air base with Osama bin Laden's body when I was breaking the news that Osama bin Laden was dead. They were watching it in the monitor. Uh, in uh, the Afghan airbase after they returned from their raid on Pakistan. They killed I'm him. glad you've he assured us of his back. demise because apparently uh, perhaps uh, President Trump, former President Trump, doesn't see it that way. But you actually also, I just want to get into some things that are thick in the news and we got lots of questions for you. You were also, I think, the first to uh, telecast as a brooder tape uh, on one of your, I, one of your TV shows. And now you've got the whole single bullet theory being challenged also by a Secret Service man who was there. He's 88 years old, but he claims he saw and witnessed. And he, he's also a neighbor <laughs> from Cleveland. Oh, from Cleveland I didn't realize. Area. There's a real Cleveland connection here. Um, I always remember Woody Allen's line. Uh, I, I, at one point I said, you could put it on my tombstone. The world is a beautiful place and life has meaning except for certain parts of Cleveland. But then I was from the other side of the tracks from where you are in Shaker Heights. We used to, in fact, did you, did you ever hear the, the Cleveland Heights uh, yell about Shaker Heights, the cheer about Shaker Heights? No. Shaker, Shaker, you are it, S-H for Shaker, I-T for it. That was what we used to say <laughs> up in the stands in Cleveland Heights. Memories there. Let's get, get back to Fox, though. You said you left Fox because you were essentially fired from the five. Uh, and uh, after that... 
you said you didn't want to be fired from the five, but you just were ready to go. And this was in the wake of what happened with Dominion, what happened with uh, another lawsuit by a former producer of Tucker Carlson's, uh, a lawsuit that's waiting to happen by someone who Tucker Carlson identified as being somehow um, Ray Epps, working for yeah. the FBI, Ray Epps. Yeah. So all of these things kind of collide in a different way. Um, you said, it's not my ideology anymore. Wasn't that really at the heart of your leaving? Well, I didn't say anymore. I, I, what I said was, there was always an ideological stress and tension, and I was never I was never a good ideological fit for Fox. But I was as I was explaining the trajectory of my my leaving. I stuck around too long. Now, what I stuck around too long for the reasons that old men and women stay in their jobs because they're afraid they won't get another job because they're insecure, because they come from uh, poverty and they worry that... Excuse uh, me, you put President Biden in that category? I think President Biden is in that category. I think that's very wise of you to suggest that, and that's a whole discussion that we could have. But I stayed too long at Fox. I did. And then once uh, uh, once I collided with people who uh, were more important to Fox uh, in, in terms of... Uh, uh, market appeal than I was, and uh, you know I was I was doomed. I Roger Ailes was gone. I had no uh, no rabbi in the uh, in the central office anymore, and uh, you know it was it, I I overstayed by several years. I should have left like 2012, my last combat assignment. Well, speaking of rabbis, uh, I got to ask you about Israel because I saw a statement that you made back in because Netanyahu is now, as we're speaking, meeting with President Biden or at least meeting with uh, along with Zelensky. Uh, they're at the White House or at D.C. And I was struck by something you said back in 2002. You said, I'm a Zionist. I would die for Israel. Fast forward. You became critical of the treatment of Palestinians and what happened with uh, Hamas, and also even cited at one point with uh, Rashid Talib uh, about not setting arms to Israel. Where are you now, especially in light of this whole frap that's going on in Israel, which is bigger than anything we've ever seen before in terms of protest? I, I think that criticizing Israel in this country has become much more incendiary, a risk for any public person. Uh, it effectively censors how people feel about what's going on. I'm still an ardent Zionist. But what I said, the, the rest of that quote back in 2002 is, after what I have seen, I'm also a Palestinianist. I still, even though the odds of it ever happening are so remote, embrace the United States of America's position on Israel and the occupied territories. The United States position is, and Geraldo Rivera's position is, two states living side by side in peace. That's what I want. That's my position. And to attack anyone who supports his nation's position on something like that should reassess what it is exactly that they are saying and what they're, what they're thinking. I think that Bibi Netanyahu, who I've known since 1973, and I've smoked cigars with and hung out with, and he, you know, at the King David Hotel and in uh, uh, in Manhattan, 
uh, King David Hotel in Jerusalem and in Manhattan. Uh, a, a brilliant, articulate man. But he and I totally disagree on the Palestinians. I think that he is leading Israel now down uh, a very, very dangerous path. And uh, the Israeli people with their hundreds of thousands strong taking to the streets to protest his attempt to unmake uh, the Supreme Court of his country and to become an authoritarian, even more authoritarian leader is, uh, is very deeply distressing to me as someone who loves Israel and particularly to me as, a, as an American Jew who, uh, uh, you know, I, I want nothing more than the best for, for Israel. So you identify more as an American Jew than you do as of Hispanic or Puerto Rican <laughs> heritage? Uh, I, that's a good question. Now, my Puerto Rican family was much, much, much larger than my Jewish family. And my exposure uh, to my Puerto Rican family was certainly from when my, uh, my early teenage years on as much more a, a, a deep. Uh, uh, and I, I, my, dad, my dad was one of 17. So when you have one of 17, all of, he was the first one to the mainland. He brought all of his brothers and sisters over time. They all work with him in uh, uh, the, the cafeteria of Republic Aviation Corporation. My dad got the job as the manager of the kitchen help. He brought all his relatives. So I was exposed to, you know, my uncle Carlos, my uncle Raymond, my uncle Augustine, my aunt Anna, my, I, I, I go on and on. So I identified more with the Puerto Rican side, but I was also bar mitzvahed. So when you have a bar mitzvah, you invite the family. Uh, by then, we had moved to West Babylon. Were you Jerry no, Rivers then? No, I was never Jerry Rivers. And That's I'm a myth, to, huh? It's a, it's a myth. It's, it's an insult. And it's a, it, it shows a certain intellectual perversity to me that that— uh, with no no documentation, no one ever said that they knew me then. It was just a bunch of bullshit. Uh, but anyway, be that as it may. So I have my bar mitzvah, and I have the bar mitzvah in the volunteer fire department hall in North Lindenhurst, the adjacent town, because as I said, there's no temple, uh, no Jews uh, in my high school at all, West Babylon High School. Uh, so I have the bar mitzvah, and you invite the family to the bar mitzvah. So my bar mitzvah was you know, six Jews and 95 Puerto Ricans, uh, Catholics. Uh, and some had already become uh, evangelical uh, Catholics, so uh, much more the charismatic kind. So uh, comes time for the sacred part, the haptorah, and everyone's got the yarmulkes on, the, the handout yarmulkes. So all the Puerto Ricans, you know, they sense this, the sacredness of it. So they take the, the uh, yarmulkes off, they put them over their hearts, and uh, it, so the, it is the most hilarious scene you can imagine. It's like uh, Adam Sandler would make a great uh, director of that movie. Well, if you're listening, Adam, there's a real possibility there. And Geraldo could make an appearance, as you have in a couple of other movies, by the way. I have, yeah, I have. We've got a lot of questions. Let me go to as many as we can here. And uh, the first one is about Fox News. It's from Reed, who once says you were a prominent figure at Fox News for many years. Where do you go now for balance and fair reporting? It was, was Fox ever that? <laughs> Fox was never that, or maybe it was uh, early on. Uh, I, I, I started by saying that, well, I, maybe it was on, last night on CNN, 
Rupert Murdoch's genius was to sense that that half of the population was not being served. So you, you, I, I heard a report, a critical report on Fox mm -hmm. News uh, uh, on CNN last night. So it was uh, they, they, they're climate change deniers. They uh, don't believe in a woman's right to choose. Uh, they're gun gun rights uh, uh, absolutists. Uh, they ha hate immigrants. Uh, half the country believes that. So if you're saying that to serve them, like fair and balanced, what is exactly fair and balanced? What is, is it half the time you're pro-abortion, half the time you're anti-abortion, half the time you're pro-immigration reform, the other time you're anti-immigration, uh, uh, half the time you're gun control advocate, the other time you're pro-absolute well, Excuse Amendment. me, don't you need to make a division between the opinion makers, Laura Ingram and yeah, that crew, and those who do the news? There's they, a, there's yeah, a real yeah, divide, that's, that's, always been, that's always been the, uh, the conceit uh, of, of, of all the news networks. I submit to you, if you watch a half hour of all of them, you'll be able to know what the politics of the principal players are. Uh, it wouldn't even take a half hour. You know about Michael Wolff's book, by the way, since you've been watching CNN, where I guess I guess he was on there recently. He was saying that uh, a deal was made to, at first they were going to throw Hannity out, and then they decided they wanted to throw Tucker under the bus, and that's why... Tucker Carlson was fired, even though Hannity was much more sort of on uh, in the Dominion uh, credibility camp than Tucker Carlson. I, I, there was uh, outside the purview of my personal experience, and I'm not going <laughs> to speculate on that. All right, so instead we'll go to another question from John, who identifies himself as sending the question from Earth, maybe because our last podcast guest was Avi Loeb, who's a searching for extraterrestrials. But John says, every time you were on Hannity versus Don Bongino, it usually ended in a tussle. Was that theater or real? By the way, it was oh, no. always entertaining, oh. he said. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, uh, I can attest that that passion was, uh, was real, uh, that Bongino and I really hated each other, at least when we were in combat. Of course, uh, there's a cordiality. There's a. There's a. That's the fake part. The cordiality. <laughs> you know, it's a. It is. You. You. You have good manners when you're. In, you know, with someone, <laughs> even though uh, you can have a, a, a real ferocious uh, fight on the air. Well, you were known for your fights. I mean, uh, in fact, yeah. I interviewed. Uh, Tom Metzger a number of years ago with his son, <laughs> and you had your nose broken, I think, by one of those characters who was with you. They were essentially Klansmen. Uh, you got a reputation for being a fighter and being willing to put up your dukes. And I think we had a we had a fighter, a a, a, we had a contender, a heavyweight contender from Long Island named Jerry Quarry. And I once had a, a, a boxing uh, journalist say, you know, you've had more fights on the air than Jerry Quarry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you took that as a badge of honor, I bet, didn't I you? I did. I still I still do. I mean, I'm lame now. I'm an old man. I'm 80. But, but uh, I still respond. Uh, well, you called uh, Gutfield a punk, physically. supposedly, right? I, I, no, I, I called him a punk, definitely. It's on yeah, the it's on right. tape. Well, it's on the record. Speaking about things on the record, Jeff from Chicago says... Is alternative facts, that's the infamous statement that goes back to Kellyanne Conway, supposedly. Not supposedly, she did say something about alternative facts. But he wants to know, alternative facts, a side effect of an open society and democracy, taking the good with the bad. There's something to ponder. Your thoughts? Uh, 
a fact is a fact, but at what point a fetus becomes protected by law is is both a fact and a philosophical concept. Uh, so there, there there are some facts, like it's uh, what time is it? Uh, Two thirty two p.m. when we're doing this live. Cleveland time. Uh, that, yeah. That's Eleven thirty. Yeah. Right. That's a fact. Uh, uh, it's a nice day. I don't know. Uh, that's an objective fact here in Cleveland. I don't know what it is in California. But, uh, you, you know, uh, there are alternative realities. I think I live in Ohio now. Okay. So I, Which Ohio is a red was, state. A, <laughs> was a blue state. Now it's a red state. So half of Ohio thinks that... Uh, President Trump won the election. The other half is believes that he lost. I don't know. Those, those, I don't know. It's a bad analogy because uh, there is a fact there. You got to, you have to. It's a division of how they see the facts in the state that you are living in. It's a, right. (laughs) And maybe an irreconcilable division or certainly a polarizing one, sadly enough. Yeah. We'll, We'll give you more comfort by just going to another question here. This is from Frank in Baltimore. Having spent decades in journalism covering everything from war to celebrity culture, what do you believe has been the most transformative experience for you personally and why? That is a big question. And a good well, one. I was, Thanks, Frank. I was just thinking, I, I graduated Brooklyn Law School in, uh, in 1969. Uh, I was a very prominent uh, representative of a group called the Young Lords, a Puerto Rican activist group uh, that took over buildings in East Harlem. And I was the representative. And that's how I got discovered. And they sent me to Columbia Journalism School. So I was... Labor Day, 1970, I started at WABC Television, Eyewitness News in New York. Excuse me, they sent you to Columbia? You don't mean the Young Lords. I want to find the answer. No, no, I, I, they, <laughs> w, I, don't, I don't, but in fact, they, in, in, in essence, they did. It was the, my representation of them that exposed me to the media, which I never considered. Media, uh, WABC particularly, sponsored me for a special program at Columbia University for minorities. They were trying to integrate an all-white local news team, uh, the, the all, the, New York News, as diverse a city as that is, was an all-white local news reality uh, to integrate the news. They had a special program for several years at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. They sent me there. I was only there for a couple of months, January 1972, to answer the question, a long-winded uh, preamble. Uh, I got a tip about an institution in Staten Island called the Willowbrook uh, State School for the, uh, at that time they called it the mentally retarded. You can't even use that word anymore now. It's developmentally disabled. It was one of the world's largest. It was one of the world's worst. And so it was mere months after I started, uh, you know, a year and a couple of months uh, that I had the biggest story of my life. Uh, It's a... you know, I, I get very emotional when I talk when I think about it. When I talk about it, it's something I'm very engaged in to this day. Erica, my wife, and I. Uh, uh, it, it was uh, a horrible, horrible place. I still remember my key lines. This is what it looked like. This is what it sounded like. But how can I tell you about the way it smelled? I was talking about the wards that we snuck a camera in. Uh, 
uh, someone gave me the key. So I, I, I ended up exposing uh, the institution in New York and elsewhere, and it started a, a chain reaction uh, that helped lead to uh, a, the humanization of the care and treatment of the developmentally disabled that by far is my biggest story. I feel your emotion and pride in that, and I know about that story because I'm married to someone from Staten Island originally. But what I need to ask you right now, because it's a burning question in my mind, is... Do you lament leaving that kind of journalism for what was later described as tabloid TV or the where you really made your chops and made a fortune? You know, do I lament it? I did plenty of it. I did far more than almost anybody ever. I had a, you know, I had a, I invented I-teams and all that stuff. I had a help center. I, uh, you know, I... I did all of the, every drug, you know, wave that hit the nation. I was the, the uh, described by uh, one reporter as the Walter Cronkite of, uh, of drugs, <laughs> of illicit drugs, uh, you know, the heroin epidemic, the crack epidemic, all of, all of it. I did, you know, I've exposed more businesses and, you know, I, I've done a lot of it. I did a, you know, uh, the choices you make in, in, in your professional life, I, be, I believe that life is a series of random chances. And what you make of your life is what you make of those random chances. I, if I didn't work for the Young Lords, I never would have been discovered. I never would have been sent to Columbia. I never would have been a, a journalist. Some of that's uh, luck, isn't it? Uh, luck, uh, luck is one way of uh, looking at it. So I, so I went through the initial phase was the young buck uh, reporter, was an in-your-face reporter. Then I had a show called Good Night America from 1973 uh, to 1977, a late-night show, a second-generation TV news magazine, I called it. Uh, then I was on the inaugural cast of Good Morning America in 1975. Uh, then I was on the inaugural cast of 2020. I was a reporter and senior producer of 2020 for eight years. Uh, that was until 1985. Then Rune Arledge fired me. Uh, so uh, that was the first time I got fired. You also uh, fired, was, weren't you fired by the military when you were in Iraq too? Oh, well, that's, a, that's another story, also uh, hugely exaggerated. I've gone through phases is my point. I've gone through... Uh, you know, I, I did that until it, I couldn't do it. Then I did this until I couldn't do it. And uh, or, so when I got fired in 85 from ABC News, uh, I decided to sail around the world. That was my first uh, attempt to sail around the world. So I was in the Panama Canal. Um, when I get a call checking in uh, for various sources frantically from Chicago, uh, said, hey, uh, we know you're unemployed. I was the most famous unemployed person in America then. Uh, be now I am among them. Uh, they said, what's, what's the deal? And they said, we've discovered this vault belonging to uh, Scarface Al Capone. Uh, will you come and open it? And uh, my first question was, how much? Uh, you know, I, was, I, I needed 50000 a month to cover my nut. I support a lot of people. Uh, they said... Uh, they offered me 25. I said, make it 50. I, they did. So I flew, I left the boat in the Panama Canal with my brother Craig. Uh, and I flew to Chicago and I spent uh, a couple of months there or at least a full month there 
doing the pre-production and the documentary side of it. And then we opened it, as you say, the largest uh, syndicated audience ever. So I went from being the most famous unemployed person to 22 job offers the next day. And now you're unemployed and sailing again, right? <laughs> now unemployed and sailing again. And my dog's in the background, sorry. What kind of dog do you have? I have a Labrador who's just arrived back uh, from his play date and uh, two uh, multi-poos. <laughs> and how do you like living in Cleveland? Have you become a, a Guardians fan or a Browns fan or Cavaliers? Well, you know, it's hard to... I used to sell the Long Island Press and, uh, and you, to, when, you, when you sell the subscriptions uh, to the press, you got tickets to Yankee Stadium when I was 14 years old, so it's hard to shake that one. Uh, but I, I still, I've, I've gone to a couple of Guardians games this year. I like the Cavs. It's easy to not be a New York basketball fan since their team sucks so bad. Uh, and the Browns are so, you know, I've learned heartbreak uh, as a Browns fan over the last six years, uh, living mostly here in Cleveland. Uh, it's a very, uh, it's a long road uh, to hoe uh, being a Browns fan, but I, I st hope... Uh, the year that we decided to move here, Eric and I, in 2016, was the Republican convention here. It was the year the Cavs, uh, the Cavs won. LeBron James uh, took the Cavaliers to the NBA championship. The year uh, the then Cleveland Indians went into the World Series seventh game, lost to the Cubs. Uh, you know, so and the the Republican National Convention was great. Uh, the city looked great. Uh, it was like the high point of Cleveland's recent history. Since then, I think that uh, it's only gone downhill. I have to tell you, my Cleveland friends thought I was somehow a Benedict Arnold because I was always rooting for the Warriors in those face-offs between the Cavaliers and the Warriors. But the Cavaliers did not exist before when I moved out to California. Uh, the Cavaliers were not even a team or a franchise. I want to go to some more of our listeners. Uh, okay. Susan is in Billings, Montana. She says, given the constant evolution of the media industry and the myriad challenges it faces, what advice would you offer to aspiring journalists embarking on their careers today? Don't aspire to be an anchor person. There's nothing more boring than uh, an anchor person filled with their own vanity. Nothing happens in the newsroom. You've got to get out to the world. If you have a chance to be an intern, then work it as a, as a reporter. It's a big, big world out there. And uh, the studio is a tiny place that you can retire to. Be a reporter. Be there when the house is burning. Be there when, uh, with the Better Government Association, when they uh, do a, a expose of uh, the, the the gas stations that are overcharging the. You know, work it. Be an investigator. Be a reporter. Uh, be the first on the scene. Uh, be enterprising. Uh, be energetic. Be physically brave. Be intellectually courageous. Uh, be yourself. Uh, but as you are yourself, try to find people that you, that you admire, people who, who get it. Like uh, if I was a, a woman right now, I, I see Clarissa Ward of CNN, the war correspondent. I'm in awe of, of her and, and, the, and the work that uh, so many journalists still do, risking so much their lives, their health, their well-being. Uh, you know, if, you're, if there's a hurricane going to hit the shore, then get to where the hurricane is going to hit the shore. 
Um, if there's a if the bridge collapses, get to the bridge collapse. Uh, find out uh, you know why uh, uh, the John is standing there crying. You know, be empathetic. Be an agent for positive social change. Can you, you teach know, courage I, and empathy, the kinds of things you're talking about? Can you really learn those know. things I, uh, I from have, scratch? Or are they innate, in maybe more nature-nurture? I haven't been in a, in a journalism school in an awfully long time. Perhaps I should, uh, I should start. You'd be a good journalism professor. I mean, you come by the teaching ability naturally, I say, as a professor of many years in literature uh, and journalism. Uh, it's somebody else's turn. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and I, when, I, when people ask me advice, because I was in broadcasting for many years, I say, uh, don't try to be an anchor because you don't necessarily find those jobs are available now. Uh, the jobs are more in doing the technical side or doing the production or uh, working out, you know, doing kind of reporting like you're talking about as opposed to being in the center of things. Um, in fact, um, here's a question from Alex, which is right on target here of what we're talking about. He says, over the decades, how has the experience of hosting changed over the years? What has gotten better? What has gotten worse? Hosting? I haven't been a host since uh, Rivera Live. Uh, I, I, at large was my my last gig uh, hosting I, and on, on the Fox News Channel. Um, being a host is cool as long as you do your own reporting. As long as you're you're inquisitive, you can also you know if you can't either for budgetary or physical or uh, logistical reasons, if you can't get there, you can get there virtually, and that I think is what's what's changed. When I first went. Uh, to uh, Afghanistan, we didn't even have uh, uh, cell cell phones, or you know, it's cell phones are people don't realize or forget are twenty first century uh, development. Or you, we we went to Afghanistan the first time we had two tons of equipment. Now you go with a couple of iPhones. It's a whole. We had two helicopters. Now uh, uh, you know one one person, enterprising person, can get there in a in a cab. Um, I. I Hosting is fine. Hosting is 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 a show. There's a, I I'm a I can put on a show. Uh, there are some hosts that can't put on a show. They get locked into the teleprompter. They have no flexibility. They don't listen to the questions. You got to listen to the question before uh, you respond. Uh, you can't have a canned answer. Uh, you, you've got to stay current. Uh, you've got to read. Uh, you know, there's so many great uh, uh, publications. Uh, we we get so many here, New York, New York, Atlantic, uh, you know, piles of publications. Uh, some gather dust, others uh, are interesting. You know, don't watch news from the same source every night uh, if you can help it, if you can stand it. I mean, with the Internet now, you got to be extremely cautious about what professes to be a fact uh, to go back to your what is a fact uh, uh, point earlier, Michael, uh, you know, double source everything or make sure that if you're going to use a single source, it's from extremely reputable and, and always cite your source. Uh, well, you were a good researcher, too, and you're talking about putting on a show. It makes me think of you as a performer, uh, but you still see well, yourself. I think there's some of that. There's some of performative art also. Good Night America, certainly, when I walk out and you know, I had that. Yeah. I've been growing my hair because I, I, I'm going to – my hair was always half my act. <laughs> you get great pride in your hair, your tonsorial uh, 
and sartorial splendor, as it were. Um, I have to ask you also uh, about a very serious question. You were talking about being a war correspondent in war and admiring those who cover war, and I share that sentiment with you. The Republicans now are offering some opposition to a lot of money that's being poor, at least proposed to go to Ukraine. Where do you stand on that? A lot of Republicans are very against it, and they say Ukraine's too corrupt, and it's we need to spend the money here. Where are you? Well, you could always make that argument. They always made it about the space program, for instance. They still do, yeah. The money. yeah. With Avi Loeb, they, it came up. Yeah. We get the Palestine uh, train wreck here. Why aren't they getting the money instead of sending right. it to the moon? I am 100% behind Ukraine. I think that Russia is is a, is a despicable foster child in the family of nations. Uh, uh, the invasion of Ukraine was uh, unforgivable. Uh, it was a rotten, egotistic thing for Putin to do. I think it, it spells uh, real generational trouble for Russia going forward, the Russian Federation. Uh, is Congress right to uh, to vet some of these expenditures? I, I think absolutely. Uh, should we know in a country where corruption was so endemic that the money is really going, uh, that the American taxpayers' money is really going to the war effort? Absolutely. But you do that with auditors. You do it with uh, trusted people with access uh, to books. Uh, Zelensky himself, God bless him, uh, one of the you know seminal figures certainly of the 21st century, uh, maybe even uh, a broader historical context than that. Uh, he saved his country with his... Uh, with 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 his his verve and his courage, uh, I, but I I I think that if you can't have uh, a trusted uh, view of where your money is going, then you have every right in the world to be skeptical. I just want it in a process that doesn't detract from the war effort. Uh, there's a way to do it where why aren't and maybe there are maybe there are uh, swarms of american accountants and auditors uh in ukraine or in in the uh you know uh in the war machine uh, but while you're at it you might as well look at the expenditures of the u.s defense department uh, i remember some of my greatest exposes for 2020 certainly were the six thousand uh, dollar toilet bowl on the airplanes and things of that nature. Uh, so, what did you think about Biden unfreezing eight billion dollars for to Iran? I, I, to me, you get the Americans home, get them home, and then you could, you know, you want to, you know, go through any mass masturbatory exercises by all means. First, you get them home. So now you got them home. So now if you want to complain about the $6 billion, that's, that's fine with me. I've got, I have no beef with that now that they're home. To me, as I understand it, and I'm no expert on it, uh, the $6 billion was Iran's $6 billion from oil money that we've frozen. It was. It's not our yeah. $6 billion, It's their $6 billion. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, I, uh, one thing about Washington that disgusts me is how now we're facing this government shutdown. Uh, people are going to be laid off, some of them unpaid. It's going to run up a tally far in excess of $6 billion that they're, uh, they're complaining about. They complain just to complain because the country's so damn divided that they can get away with it. Uh, but uh, 
I'm, uh, tonight I'm going to be with uh, Chris Cuomo on News Nation talking about Bob Menendez from uh, New Jersey, and they find gold bricks in his house, and uh, you know I don't know six hundred thousand in cash in the mattress. He's a United States senator. He was already once accused of uh, corruption this decade, uh, you know, and here he is again. I, I want to know why, you know, you're on it. Why are all of these senators, when they retire, they're making 250, 300,000, and they have expense accounts. How are they always retiring with 40 million, 50 million? You know, where does this money come from? That's you where know, good journalism can really do some digging, some serious digging profoundly. Yeah. But, you know, you were at one point considering, I think, weren't you running for Lautenberg seat, Senate yeah, seat in, in, in New Jersey, and also Portman's in Ohio? Oh, right. And uh, also, uh, uh, Giuliani's in New York City as mayor. Yeah. Uh, I, that was my first one, my first big... Uh, you and Jimmy Breslin. <laughs> me, me and Jeremy Breslin, the New York Daily News. Uh, but I I thought I'd spend $5 million. I was ready to commit $5 million to, in my campaign to be mayor. And then the guy from Boston said that he was going to spend $50 million in the first couple of weeks as Bloomberg. <laughs> and he became the three-term mayor. And now he's one of the richest people on the planet. And a question for you from Kevin in Chicago. Thanks for the question, Kevin. Very important question. Given the polarized media landscape, how do you maintain your ethical standards and journalistic integrity when presenting contentious issues to the public? This is, I guess, a question that may go back to your pre-retirement, but it's a question for journalists, maybe. That no, you it's, a great, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question, and yeah. you've got to... Give people full disclosure of where you stand and don't pretend to be some savant that knows the absolute truth. You have to, if you're on, you've got to let people, well, my family is a union family, so I'm for the uh, the, the uh, United Auto Workers in this current uh, pro well, my family is a management family. That's why I'm against the Writers Guild and this. Uh, you know, you've just let people know the truth of your personal bias and prejudice. Then you could tell them anything. The American people will listen to. They'll give a fair hearing. At least they did in the before Trump. Uh, give a fair hearing as long as you give full disclosure. As long as you don't try to pull one over on people. That's the, the road to disaster. I've been in this business now with people taking slings and arrows at me for 52 years, despite the scrutiny, people questioning my relatives, going through uh, my uh, junior high record, everything. And I'm still here 52 years later. So my advice. You're um, supposed to say Kenahora, aren't you? Do you know Kenahora. Kenahora. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, it's you're been still, a while, right? Yeah, I'm glad you're still here, and many people uh, feel the same way I do. And here's a f question from Miami, Florida, from Daniel, who says, What are your thoughts on the current state of diversity in media, both in terms of representation and the range of voices and perspectives being heard? It's better. It's certainly better than it was, as I said, when I started. The, uh, the, the local news in New York City, the most diverse city in the country, was all white. Now, you know, it's, it, it is a reasonable reflection of the audience that it seeks to serve. And I, I think that from a, a Latino 
I don't even know if the, now now they they say Latin because they don't want to say Latino or Latina. Uh, but from a Hispanic American's point of view, I think that uh, they say it Latinx is, actually now too. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I mean that's a, that's a construct that uh, from a liberal arts college, but uh, I I think that it's getting much better. We have to constantly be aware of the need for diversity and not make diversity and inclusion and that stuff a goal in and of itself. It should be a rich variety of ideas and, a, and a, it should be reasonably reflective of the, of the nation. Uh, uh, it's very, very difficult. Uh, there's so many competing uh, professions for uh, uh, people from racial and uh, et ethnic minorities now that to get the best uh, into journalism specifically as a profession is not, not that easy, but it's getting better. It is much, much better than it was when I started. And I think that you have to credit the various people now understand in business that it is good business when you have uh, a, a presenter or an anchor or a news team uh, that looks like the audience, uh, you know, I, I think it's a good now. It's one of the things that makes Ron DeSantis mad at Disney and corporations. Yeah, but the, but is, are are liberals mad at BET, which is you know how how reflective is that? I, you know, it's a, I think there's room for that kind of niche. Programming also, I think it's a good thing that people should be able to tune in to see the Puerto Rican Jewish guy or the, you know, the uh, Asian guy or the. I love, I, I love the, you know, now you have people running on the Republican side uh, of the aisle and they, you got a, a woman uh, of, of Indian uh, descent, you've got, uh, you know, uh, Tim Scott, uh, a black guy, you got uh, uh, Chris Christie, a big guy. Uh, uh, you know, I, I love that. I love I, I, I love it. But I, I think that what you don't want is to make, you know, artificial rules about it. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of affirmative action. I think that it, it was an accelerant toward integration and, and achievement. And I as a product of affirmative action myself, I, I lament the Supreme Court's decision uh, making it uh, ruling it unconstitutional. But all those GOP opponents you mentioned are being left in the dust in terms of polls by Donald Trump. Well, that is, uh, as I say, that is a, a, a stark reality uh, that people looking at the Republican Party have to confront. Uh, here in Ohio, the anti-abortion forces got their asses kicked yeah. in a recent uh, constitutional referendum or a lead-up to a referendum to enshrine... Uh, uh, reproductive rights in the state constitution. And I think that the people, I mean, just as an aside, I think the people who are r rooting uh, against, uh, you know, in the post Roe v. Wade era uh, against uh, the right to abortion uh, uh, are in for a, a big surprise. I think that the right to reproductive rights, not that you asked, will be enshrined in the state constitutions uh, 
Uh, it's already in, uh, what is it, 16 uh, states? Uh, I think it'll be in all of them. Before Would you over. agree with me that regardless of whether we have a gerontology race once again and a redux uh, between Biden and Trump or whomever in this gerontology that we're living in, um, seem to be living in presently in this republic, that it's going to come down in many ways disproportionately to abortion as an issue that the Democrats can climb aboard and the Republicans essentially the migration problem and the immigration problem. I think that's a, it's exactly how I feel about it. It'll cut whichever one is the, is the more motivating issue. Uh, it's, it's shocking. Uh, you know, as, as someone who's written a couple of books on uh, immigration as the driving force uh, in terms of uh, a Hispanic uh, influence gr growing in this country, uh, with all this drone footage of people flooding over and 160,000 Venezuelans and all the rest of that, that's a very, very potent issue, very potent issue in New York, a very bastion of liberalism. It's a, you know, wouldn't it be wicked that, uh, uh, you know, uh, Greg Abbott and, uh, and DeSantis uh, will have proven uh, uh, right in terms of the impact sending migrants to Martha's Vineyard and so forth has had? Uh, it, it, it's a reality. It's the immigration system's broken down. Everybody wants to live in America. Everybody wants to live in the United States. I'm, I've been to every country in the world. Everybody wants to be in America. Uh, and there's obviously got to be rules in, uh, in some measure. But I also think that immigrants enrich and strengthen a country. I think the difference between the United States and Russia is that no one wants to live in Russia and everyone wants to live in America. Yeah. That's why we're going to win. Well said. We've got almost no time left. I want to ask you to say something uh, sort of to con conclude. You got it right this time as far as marriage from everything that I've been uh, able yeah. to divine. 20 years. This year is a great yeah. summer. I, yeah. My talk. 80th birthday, my 20th uh, wedding anniversary, and my daughter, my youngest of five, turned 18. So it's been quite a summer. And you have married very well this time and also uh, very, very proud very well. to be a father and a grandfather. A grandchildren, as someone who recently had another grandchild, I'd like your thoughts about being a grandfather. It's, it's, it's like being a parent only easier. <laughs> you don't have to, you know, you, you could take off. Uh, I love my grandchildren. They, they are my uh, immortality. I, uh, I, I look at them, I watch them grow with such, uh, and my children too. They're not, they're not full grown yet, but to see the achievement and the uh, accomplishments of my children and to see the, uh, my wonderful, loving grandchildren is very life-affirming. And I, I feel like a very lucky person. I mean, it's all about uh, you know, health and 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 optimism and and uh, the the wonder of uh, you know people the people growing into people. It's uh, it's it's just terrific. And, Can I uh, ask Erica you about your health? Great life partner. I'm uh, you know aside from my limp and then my dead right foot, I'm in perfect health. I I feel uh, you know vital. I feel strong. I feel like it's still punch out. At least middleweights. Uh, I, I don't. I, I asked uh, my doctor last week. I said, "Well, what's going to kill me?" He said, "Something." <laughs> <laughs> Excellent medical advice. A great diagnostician. <laughs> yeah, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. And thanks, uh, Michael. Delight. And many thanks to all of you who joined us for this episode. 
Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Thank you to all who will hear us on Apple and Spotify or on our website at graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. And if you have not joined our growing community of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, just go, preferably with dispatch, to our website at graymatter.show and become a member. Thanks to my Cleveland Connection friend, Paul Katz, and to the terrific Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Kevin, and Mickey, and to this episode's special guest, Geraldo Rivera. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.